Hello, and welcome to the Transatlantic series, a co-production between Audible Bleeding and the ESVS podcast, where we compare, contrast, and explore vascular surgery society guidelines. Today, we will be exploring the International Working Group on the Diabetic Foot, IWGDF, European Society for Vascular Surgery, and Society for Vascular Surgery Guidelines on Peripheral Arterial Disease in Patients with Diabetes and Foot Ulcers. I'm Susanne Stokmans from ESVS. And I'm Naveed Rahman from Audible Bleeding. We are thrilled to have the authors join us to discuss their important work on these international guidelines published in September 2023 with representatives from Australia, Europe, and the United States. Please welcome our Australian colleagues, Professor Robert Fitchridge from the Department of Vascular Surgery at University of Adelaide and Professor Vivienne Schuder from the Department of Podiatry at Western Sydney University. Dr. Fitridge is most recognized for his work on predictive modeling of outcomes after endovascular aneurysm surgery. He's also a member of the steering committee for the Global Vascular Guideline on the Management of Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia. His research interests include outcome modeling of aortic surgery and wound healing in the diabetic foot. Hi, I'm happy to have joined this uh, exciting group. Dr. Shooter has published extensively on diabetic foot disease. She leads a clinically-based research program focusing on prevention and management of diabetes-related foot disease for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and for non-Indigenous Australians. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. And thank you to Suzanne and David for the introduction and for hosting us today. Representing the European perspective, we have Professor Nicolas Schaper from the Department of Endocrinology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands, where he was the coordinator of its multidisciplinary diabetic food team. Dr. Schaper was the coordinator of the European Diabetic Food Research Consortium Eurodiale. He is the chair of the ISDF 2023 and the chair of the International Working Group on the Diabetic Foot. Yes, also I would like to thank Navid and you, Suzanne, for your kind introduction. And I'm very glad to be here with all these important people. Thank you for giving me the opportunity for being here because that also gives me the opportunity to give some very brief information, background information on the International Working Group on the Diabetic Foot. This group was uh, set up in the 90s of the last century. We produced our first guideline in 1999. So we are already there in the field since 24 years. And in that way, this group is rather unique because it is there already so long. And our guidelines are translated in so many languages. We hope that, again, uh, the current guidelines, which includes the guidelines we are going to discuss now on peripheral artery disease, will be translated in nearly all the major languages of the world. We have an extensive network all over the world uh, of more than 100 experts involved, and they will translate it in Chinese, German, even Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, etc., that, again, is for the ESVS and SCF, a rather unique podium to present these guidelines. That's one. Two is that we have a long tradition of producing multidisciplinary guidelines. And our guidelines are not about just one specific topic, although today we're going to discuss periphery artery disease. I would like to remind everybody listening to this podcast 
to go also to our guidelines on our website, and you can find the references in the guideline text about the other aspects of diabetic foot disease, prevention, classification of an ulcer, offloading, wound healing, and last but not least, treating of infection. And these infection guidelines, they were written together with the American Association for Infectious Diseases. So again, that was an inter-society guideline. So we are very grateful to be able to collaborate with these different important organizations. Thank you for that overview of the International Working Group on the Diabetic Foot. We are also excited to be joined by Professor Joseph Mills, Chief of Vascular Surgery at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. He has served as president of the Peripheral Vascular Surgery Society, Western Vascular Society, and Association of Program Directors in Vascular Surgery. He was the director of the American Board of Surgery and just finished his term as chair of the Vascular Surgery Board of the ABS. Yeah, thank you for that. It's an honor to be here. I like the fact we have four colleagues here that we're all heavily involved in writing this, and we have an endocrinologist, two vascular surgeons, and a podiatrist. So I think it's really important to recognize, we can talk about that when we get into the discussion, but how difficult it is to get multiple specialties, but also three different societies that publish in two different publishers, but three different publishing setups to get this done. So we think it was really important to try to get as many people in this space on the same page to come up with guidelines and not just guidelines, but guidelines that can be implemented in practice that answer important questions for the patients we see every day. So thank you for the introduction and it's, I'm honored to be here. We have six people from five different time zones today. So thank you again, everyone, for taking the time to be with us and discuss this important topic. Dr. Fittridge, could you tell us how the initial collaboration was formed between the IWGDF, ESVS, and SVS to create these joint guidelines? Thanks, Naveek. Yes, it was quite a lot of work, really. The diabetes-related foot complications are such an important part of our workload as vascular surgeons, and we know that they are related to about 80% or more of amputations in most countries. That We felt that a truly global approach and a consistent approach between the vascular societies as well as the international working group that I've had it put would be of particular value to vascular surgeons and clinicians. I guess we'd already worked together on the Global Vascular Guidelines for Chronic Limb Threatening Ischemia, and Joe was uh, played a major role in that, and, oh, and Mike Conti obviously was a very uh, key person who was uh, part of our working group. So it wasn't, in a way, a novel concept uh, for the two major vascular societies to work together, and uh, I think the International Working Group really felt that leading that collaboration or working together was going to be an extremely valuable activity. And of course, a lot of vascular surgeons tend to read the European Journal or the JBS, but they wouldn't necessarily look at, say, diabetes metabolism research reviews or go onto the IWGDF website. So it certainly gives us an opportunity to raise the profile of these recommendations in the real world for vascular trainees and vascular surgeons. As Nicholas said, we did have a multidisciplinary team. So we obviously had a significant number of vascular surgeons there, but we had interventional radiologists, angiologists, uh, endocrinologists, and uh, Viv as the lone podiatrist. And if I may add, uh, Rob, would you agree that, and then Joe, 
that this multidisciplinary aspect is in some ways unique, enables a global implementation, global approach, but also for the reader, important to realize that you have to make the translation to your local system. It's not a guideline which prescribes exactly what to do, when, how, etc. What preferably we as clinicians would like to hear, but what is possible in the USA or in the UK is sometimes not possible in Uganda or even in the Netherlands and the other way around. Yes, we produce guidelines and they should be setting the theme on which local vascular teams together with endocrinologists and other people, so creating a multidisciplinary food team, then could base upon their local strategies. Absolutely. I couldn't say it uh, better myself. Joe, did you want to comment? No, we struggled with that in some ways because certain things are much easier to do in certain healthcare settings in certain parts of the world. And so if you make a guideline that's not able to be implemented in large settings in large parts of the world, then it's not very useful. On the other hand, we hear from some countries that they want the bar to be set high so they can use that bar to argue for resources. And so we always had to weigh that. How practical is this particular piece of advice? And we did look at whether or not it was going to be implementable in practice as part of our criteria for what we recommended and which questions we answered. So one thing that got us stuck a little bit in the process was the methodology that we used up front. So the SVS, the ESVS, and the working group have published guidelines for a long time, but they've all used different methodologies. One of the agreements that had to be overcome, and that didn't take too much, was we were going to use a specific methodology that the working group had utilized before and that all actually all the leaders of the groups had to take courses to make sure they were at least up to snuff with the basics of the methodology that was used. And I think that led to some confusion when we got to the review process is that reviewers from different organizations weren't used to the methodology. So it caused a little bit of a delay in getting some things agreed on because there were lots of questions that were more related to not understanding the methodology than to actually what the recommendations were. No, I, th I think that's absolutely true, Joe. And I think it's the fact that we weren't purely focused on the clinical outcomes of interventions, but we also looked at when we developed a recommendation, how we could then translate that recommendation. So a really unique aspect of these guidelines is we haven't just picked the best intervention based on clinical outcomes, we picked the best intervention using a number of different mechanisms to actually evaluate whether that uh, particular intervention is going to be translatable and usable across a number of different scenarios. That's a great lead-in to our next topic. Based on the review of all relevant and available literature, you were able to publish three systematic reviews previously regarding the diagnosis, prognosis, and management of peripheral arterial disease and diabetes. Links will be included in the show notes. Dr. Shooter, would you dive more in-depth about how these systematic reviews were graded and then translated to recommendations within these joint guidelines? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right, we performed uh, three systematic reviews and they underpin these guidelines. First one related to the diagnostic accuracy and the reliability of bedside vascular testing, and this is for diagnosis of peripheral artery disease. Uh, the second looked at uh, the prognostic capacity of those bedside tests, 
So that's really about whether the tests, whether the results of the vascular testing can help us identify which of our patients is more likely to heal and those who are more likely to undergo an amputation. And then finally, we looked at surgical intervention outcomes in a review where we were looking at whether bypass or endovascular interventions are more effective to heal a foot ulcer or prevent an amputation, and also whether we should be using direct or indirect revascularization approaches and which approach is more effective uh, for the same purpose. So once we've done these systematic reviews, we then developed evidence tables for each one for our main outcomes, and then we had to go through a process of determining the certainty of the evidence. So this was basically our measure of the quality of the evidence that we found, and we determined this by using an assessment of a number of different items. So this included risk of bias assessment. To do this, we used the available critical appraisal tools that suited the study designs in each of the particular systematic reviews, so they were different for each review. Uh, We looked at the imprecision in results, so whether the Study results were reporting large confidence intervals, so indicating that the results are are imprecise. Uh, We get imprecision from a number of different things. So it can be from small numbers of included participants or very few events in the study. We looked at the indirectness of the research. So direct research evidence is where the research directly compares the interventions that we're interested in and delivers it to populations that we're interested in and it measures the outcomes that we want to have a look at. So the evidence becomes more indirect when we have to look at a subgroup analysis, for example, to extract the data for the population that we're actually interested in. In addition to this, we then also considered the publication bias. Uh, So when we look at these factors, observed controlled studies or uncontrolled observational studies perform progressively worse across these domains. So when we don't have any available randomised controlled trials, we have to downgrade that certainty of evidence. For our treatment review, we only had one available randomised controlled trial, which was the BEST CLI trial, uh, which a lot of uh, the listeners will be very familiar with. But this left us nothing to compare that trial to. So we weren't actually able to assess the inconsistency. Uh, In addition, we had to use a sum analysis in diabetes participants from that trial. So even though it was a really well-designed trial, it ended up with a moderate certainty of evidence rating. Once we had that certainty of evidence rating for our clinical questions, we could then use that to inform the development of our recommendations for this process. In addition to that certainty of evidence, we conducted a summary of judgments process. So this was the process that Joe was alluding to before. In this process, we assessed the intervention from a number of different perspectives, including aspects of health access, acceptability, patient values, and health equity. So we weren't just focused only on the clinical effectiveness of the intervention. We were actually looking at aspects of translation. Once we'd done that, we then developed our recommendations and rationales in light of those certainty of evidence ratings that we'd come up with and the summary judgments that we'd developed to each of our clinical questions. Dr. Schaper, why is it so important to have a separate guideline in patients with PID and diabetes? Yeah, because that, of course, is the first question any vascular surgeon could ask, because there are global guidelines and other guidelines on PID. So why specific for diabetes? The point is, at least according to our working group, is that the peripheral artery disease in subjects with diabetes presents as a different disease. 
So the clinical symptoms and signs can be different. I'll summarize that very briefly. There is an interaction between the diabetic complications and the diagnostic accuracy of tests. So suddenly, various tests do not perform as good in patients with diabetes as in subjects without diabetes. Then the course of the disease is different. We didn't address that very much, but in all the studies, it was nicely shown that patients with diabetes have a 20-fold higher risk of having amputation than patients without diabetes. And then finally, treatment is in some aspects different because the disease is so distal and the lower leg arteries involved and even foot arteries can be involved, rendering treatment more difficult. So clinics, I can be very briefly about it, the clinical presentation, because nearly all patients have neuropathy. Patients can have critical limb ischemia, but they don't have pain. So one of the main hallmarks of critical limb ischemia, wrist pain, is usually not there in diabetic patients or only they have relatively mild pain. So they can have extensive tissue destruction with relatively little symptoms. And the second point is that if they, the wounds get infected, which is usually the penultimate event that leads to amputation, the infection is usually mitigated in its clinical signs. There is less, again, usually less pain or no pain, and inflammatory responses are impaired in patients with diabetes. So diagnostics become much more subtle. That means that the clinical presentation of a patient with diabetes and peripheral artery disease is different. And of course, then the diagnosis becomes also different. But Joe Mills knows much more about that. Suzanne, if you allow me, I would pass, like to pass on to Joe to give us some background on that and on why did we formulate in a few instances uh, even strong recommendations because that was possible in the area of diagnosis. I've been working with the International Working Group on the Diabetic Foot probably at least 15 years. And they have a very rigid, well-defined process. They define up front what the question is and then what the paper must include in order to be included in the review. And for years, lots of the vascular surgery papers that dealt with revascularization didn't really separate patients with and without diabetes. And partly because of neuropathy and also because of their susceptibility to infection, Outcomes are different in those patients. And also, we didn't really have a system to look at patients with diabetes that had chronic limb-threatening ischemia separately from patients that, that were just smokers or, or had atherosclerosis without diabetes. So it, it just dawned on me that we needed to figure out how to sort these patients out. And then I looked at my own career. When I started in vascular surgery, probably no more than 25% of my PAD patients had diabetes. Now it's close to 90%. And over time, it took a long time for me to come to grips with this, but their presentation's different. And it's not always so obvious that they have PAD or how much PAD they have. Or to me, the big question, is there enough PAD there that I'm likely to help the patient if I investigate it more fully with an angiogram and revascularize them? So it's impractical to angiogram every single patient that has a diabetic foot ulcer. On the other hand, you don't want people that have a significant component of ischemia to be missed. The literature has gotten better. So now many studies now do separate. For example, that's what allowed us to include the best CLI trial. It was a large prospective trial, much, very much wanted to include it because it was the largest one ever done in that space. But fortunately, they analyzed the outcomes separately in people with and without diabetes. So that's 
that was one of the prerequisites. Your question is, what's the outcome of a patient with a diabetic foot ulcer and PAD? If you can't get that answer for patients with diabetes from a global vascular paper, then you have to exclude it. We ended up going through three different areas. We looked at diagnosis of PAD. We looked at whether or not you could estimate the likelihood of outcomes, so prognosis. And then we looked most extensively. I think there were five of each of those. And then there were 15 recommendations for PAD treatment. We can go through the big picture of those, but that's how we did it. And even for diagnosis, so there, there's some debate there. So we decided to include patients with and without a foot ulcer. So if they have a foot ulcer, to me, the question really is, is there PAD there? And if there is, is it significant enough that it's likely to be one of the major factors contributing to risk of amputation? If so, it should be corrected. If the patient doesn't have a foot ulcer, why would you ask that question? Well, if it's going to lead to better risk factor management and elevate the patient's awareness and the physician's awareness that this patient really needs maximal risk factor modifications, then you should look. You shouldn't look for an avenue to do procedures because there's no evidence that doing a prophylactic procedure on a patient who doesn't have CLTI yet is a benefit. So he phrased questions differently. What should you do to diagnose PAD in a patient without a foot ulcer then with the foot ulcer? And then also when you do that, then what are the next steps? Hope that makes things clear. Yes, and in the guideline amongst the diagnosis recommendations, it states that the use of pedal waveforms in addition to ABI and TBIs in patients without diabetic ulcers. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on pedal waveforms in patients without any ulcer or wounds? Is there a specific cutoff value that you utilize? Essentially, when we're looking at, at pedal waveforms, we're looking at whether uh, we have a monophasic or absent waveform we would consider both of those indicative of PAD being present. I think we often see, particularly in our practice, renal patients, renal failure patients who have monophasic waveforms but incompressible or high toe pressures. So I think it is important that we actually look at the waveforms that we get at the ankle. One of the interesting aspects of the diagnosis data was that we actually recommend using the lower ankle pressure rather than the higher ankle pressure. And for those of us that have been teaching students and registrars for many years, it was quite a change in approach. But as most of our patients have significant tibial disease, you can have one tibial artery running within line clothing ankle and two occluded tibials and your ankle pressure gives you a, an ABI that's in the normal range, whereas the other two vessels to the ankle could be quite significantly affected and the ankle pressure lowered. So it wasn't just our working group. The claudication working group actually also have made comment about using the lower ankle pressure rather than the normal ankle pressure. It's interesting just that whole discussion about something that you think is really a basic and fundamental part of what we do is actually probably wrong. Which just takes a bit of getting used to coming up with and saying and then uh, adapting to. If you think about the sensitivity of it, it's going to be higher if you take the lower measurement because you're less likely to miss disease. If your goal is to increase sensitivity, that's the way to do it. As far as the waveform, so if an ABI exceeds 1.4, it's abnormal. And that patient has at least calcified arteries, which is by definition, they have disease. And you can't predict how much disease they have or whether they're going to heal or not if the ABIs are falsely elevated. But the reason we emphasize waveforms also is more treacherous is a falsely normal ABI. So you have a patient with an ABI of 
or 0.86, normal, near normal. And if you just look at that on an algorithm that uses only pressures, you're going to miss significant disease, even CLTI. And that's why you need to marry those pressures with the waveforms. If you have a triphasic waveform on both pedal arteries in a given leg and the ABI is over 0.9, you probably don't have a lot of disease. On the other hand, if the patient has a foot ulcer and an ABI of 0.85 or 0.9 and the waveforms are blunted and monophasic, then you need to marry those two together. And there you'd go with the blunted monophasic waveform as indicating more significant disease. And in that case, the vessel's probably calcified enough that it's harder to occlude with the cush, but not so calcified that it's incompressible. So that's what worries me. If people just look at the numbers and go by the numbers on the ABI to rule in or rule out disease and don't understand how to interpret the waveforms or don't even get waveforms, then we're going to mislead people. So we talked about that a lot also. May I add one one additional aspect to this discussion? Because maybe for a vascular surgeon, it's nothing new. But for me, not coming from the area of vascular surgery, in the beginning, I always wanted to hear, give me a number. And 0.89, okay, horrible. Abnormality, peripheral disease, 0.91, fantastic. So what we learned here, and it probably is also true for patients without diabetes, but still it holds very much true for this population, that none of the tests we use is optimal. They all have a rather poor performance in daily practice. Poor sensitivity, poor specificity. Some tests are reasonable, but still not optimal, which is the reason why we say you have to do all three tests. You have to do ABI, you have to do the waveforms, you have to do TBI. And that is, in some areas, and at least in diabetes land, a major change because we stress so much that none of these tests on their own stands up as the test, but you have to combine them. But even then, the conclusion of the test can be wrong. So if you, based on these tests, you exclude a patient's having peripheral arterial disease, but the wound doesn't heal after four weeks, despite optimized standard care, then still you have to go down the path further down to try to exclude peripheral artery disease. All right, thank you. Let's now move on to the prognosis statements. It is suggested that ABI below 0.5 toe pressures below 30, and transcutaneous oxygen pressures below 25 millimeters of mercury might result in poor wound healing. Dr. Tudor, which of these measurements do you regularly obtain for your patients, and how do they change your management strategy? Which measurements have you found to be the most useful in clinical prognosis? That's a a really good question and a difficult question to answer. I think from a purely pragmatic point of view, the most useful measurements are the ones that I'm actually able to perform. And probably while that sounds like I'm stating the obvious, it's actually a really important consideration what it was for us when we were making the recommendations. So a low ABI, a low toe pressure, a low TCPO2, all of those measures have some capacity to help us identify people who might not heal and who might be at increased risk of of having an amputation. But similar to the diagnostic tests, none of them can do it perfectly well. TCPO2 probably performed a little bit better and perhaps that would be a test that I would choose if I could choose any test I wanted. But then I would always use that test in combination with other tests as well. 
But within the guidelines, we actually identified TCPO2 and skin perfusion pressure as being secondary tests for this particular purpose. And the reason we did that was relating back to that healthcare access and health equity and more on a global scale. So we really needed to look at those measurements and decide whether or not, even if they might be slightly more clinically effective, the large majority of the population were actually going to have access to them. TCPO2 is an example of a test that's less widely available, requires greater expertise to apply, and it's, it's likely going to be unaffordable in some countries. So in, in the rationale for that particular recommendation, this is why we actually identified TCPO2 as being a secondary test. If I go back to my clinical practice, the reality for me is that in many of the clinical settings I work in, I don't have TCPO2. So therefore, I would be using an ABI and toe pressure and I would look at both of those measurement results. And if one of those was close to or was falling under those thresholds, then I would be considering that my patient's unlikely to heal and I would be chasing a vascular referral as a priority. And would you use waveforms as a test to predict prognosis, FIF? That's a good question because we use Peter Doppler waveforms to, for diagnosis and they're actually good for diagnosis. There's a lack of evidence around their capacity in terms of prognosis. So there are only a couple of studies that have actually looked at whether or not fetal Doppler waveforms can predict healing or amputation. And from those studies, there is weak evidence for that, which is why we didn't include that in our recommendation. That doesn't mean in the future that larger studies may be done which actually demonstrate something different. But at this point in time, based on the evidence that we have in a patient population with diabetes-related foot ulcer, we don't have the evidence. The Wound Ischemia Foot Infection, or Wi-Fi classification system, is conditionally recommended to estimate healing likelihood and amputation risk. We are fortunate to be joined by Dr. Mills, who was actually the first author on the publication of the Wi-Fi classification system. Dr. Mills, how do you use the Wi-Fi classification in writing your clinical notes? And in your experience, how well has the vascular community implemented the Wi-Fi classification in daily practice? Do you ever use the Wi-Fi classification during your discussions with patients to give them prognostic information about their possible outcomes? Short answer is yes. So part of the reason for the development of that is if you looked at Fontana and Rutherford, they were largely ischemia models only and even possibly excluded patients with diabetes. And that, actually the whole term of critical limb ischemia was originally developed. And if you read that one page paper back from the early 80s, it excludes patients with diabetes precisely because they often are complicated by neuropathy and infection. And also, even back in the 80s, it was realized that they may have a different perfusion threshold to, to permit healing compared to non-diabetics. So yes, I do use it in practice. Every, every single patient gets Wi-Fi staged. And the reason for that is really so you don't miss anything. And the idea was to convert it to something more like how we treat cancer. Like no one would treat cancer without staging it. And then if you embark upon recommended treatment for cancer, and you follow the patient through the courses of their therapy. So let's say they're going to get chemo, radiation therapy, and surgery in some sequence. What happens during their sequence of treatments? They get restaged to see if they've responded. 
And so that's been underemphasized with Wi-Fi. But the reason it was started is to upfront, what do you need to know about? How much of a wound do you have? Because actually deeper wounds that involve tendons and bones are worse than ones that are shallow. And then how much infection do you have? And infection was totally left out of Fontan and Rutherford as you've taken care of these patients in different settings, especially patients who come in county hospitals or hospitals with patients with poor access. And and even in tertiary care hospitals, the major driver of amputation is often infection. So we felt like that should be included. So yes, I do include it. So if you think of that as a Venn diagram of ischemia, infection, and wound, what sequence do you tackle them in? So if the patient has a systemic infection or a life-threatening infection or severe foot sepsis, that's the priority is getting source control of that and draining it. Even if they might need revascularization, if they have a foot full of pus, that should come first. And then the point behind using Wi-Fi, and we recommended toe pressures based on the data available when that was written. And still, that's probably my go-to measurement. But so ischemia is not missed. And that's a very common problem. What got me thinking about that was the European study on PAD and diabetes, where if you combined a patient with any PAD plus infection, it tripled their amputation risk. That was the old Eurodial study. And yet infection didn't enter into any of the existing vascular classifications, right? The idea was to make you think of all three of those things. And depending on where you are in the course of therapy, your focus may shift from infection control, if they have that, to then revascularization, then to managing the wound. How do I get this wound to a point where I can heal with a functional foot? So I do use it in practice and I do use it to try to educate patients. We did a big study in our Harris County patient population and only about 40% of patients had even a remote idea of what led to a diabetic foot ulcer, what the factors involved were that they were at risk, not just for amputation, but even for loss of life because of it. And I use that as a teaching tool. And I always go through the neuropathy. If you have a foot ulcer and you're diabetic, over 90% of those patients have neuropathy. Diagnosing it, they walk into your office with a foot ulcer and they don't limp, they have neuropathy, right? That's something we can't correct except through offloading and educating the patient to look at their feet. But then the infection part and the vascular part. We do use it. And it's been, it's been pretty well accepted. I mean, it takes a long time to get anything accepted that's new, especially this, since it wasn't really a prospective randomized trial that led to it. It was an attempt to come up with a way to systematically approach these patients. But it's been validated in multiple settings. It, it's very predictive of amputation risk. I had hoped that it might help us select therapy. Maybe we don't have the data for that yet. Even with best CLI, it's not clear yet. It's actually pretty clear that the patients with higher Wi-Fi grades do worse, but it's not clear yet whether you can help select your form of revascularization based on Wi-Fi grade. But it is also important that the grade four patients up front have a much higher risk of limb loss. So you need to talk to the patient about that. If you have an early cancer of a form that's fairly benign if treated, you'd have a different conversation with the patient than you would if they had pancreatic or gastric cancer. And so I think the same thing is true for diabetic foot disease. One of the beauties of the Wi-Fi I noticed in the Netherlands is that after the introduction of Wi-Fi, suddenly the language between internists or other people, vascular surgeons, became so much more standardized because everybody was looking at the wound. Everybody was looking at infection. Everybody was looking at severity of ischemia. So suddenly we could understand each other. And if you ask me, oh, it's a Wi-Fi 2B, I don't know what a Wi-Fi 2B is. I always forget all these numbers. But then I would look it up in the very simple app, which is there, and then I know what we're talking about. But it's what Joe said. 
The first step is that it gives you a structured way to stage the severity of the disease. And that makes communication so much easier and setting your priorities. We certainly want to, to mention the SVS and ESVS mobile apps. Both have Wi-Fi classification calculators. The links will be in the show notes. Dr. Fidrich, one of the best practice statements notes that absent pulses, monophasic or absent pedal Doppler waveforms, an ABI below 0.4, an ankle pressure below 50 millimeters of mercury, or toe pressures below 30 millimeters of mercury, or transcutaneous oxygen pressure below 30 millimeters of mercury, should lead to urgent consultation for possible revascularization. How can we partner with primary care providers and endocrinologists who routinely see diabetic patients to ensure that pulse exams are clearly documented and that absent pulses prompt additional testing? What are some systemic barriers you may have noticed to early referral and intervention? And what are some strategies to overcome these barriers? I think the international working group, the diabetic foot has been working for many years to make the guidelines accessible to clinicians, patients, and carers throughout the world. And actually from the time of publication for the next 12 months, uh, that's a major focus of the international working group is to get the guidelines translated, to get uh, national diabetes societies to uh, implement the guidelines. And, uh, I think a number of countries actually use that to try and develop their national approach to diabetes related foot disease. So. I think that's one of the advantages of the vascular societies working with the IWGDF. We're not just talking to each other as vascular surgeons. We're rolling it out to primary care providers, endocrinologists, podiatrists, etc. We know that foot disease in diabetes is uh, complex and delayed non-evidence-based care increases the risk of non-healing and amputations. So it's really important that uh, these patients are assessed properly. And I think, uh, that's been really a major focus on the approach we've had through this guideline. I think also one of the advantages of Wi-Fi actually is that we have it on the wall in our clinics and when we have podiatry students or medical students coming through, we actually walk through the wound stage, the ischemia and the foot infection. And perhaps the beauty from my perspective of Wi-Fi is that it actually codifies what an experienced clinician does every day of the week and for junior medical and podiatry staff and students, it's great to walk through that and actually think through each of those lines of Wi-Fi. And I think it's a fantastic tool from that perspective. So one of the major takeaways of these guidelines is the need for collaboration amongst a variety of specialties, including primary care, endocrinologists, podiatrists, vascular interventionalists, and other healthcare professionals. Dr. Schuder, what are some ideas to help foster regional relationships and interdisciplinary collaboration for the management of diabetic patients with PID? That's a great question. And I think it's quite a complex question because it really depends on the setting that you're in. Definitely in Australia, we have hospital-based full care services where collaboration is a part of what those services deliver. And so in the setup of those services, we get that interdisciplinary collaboration happening from that multidisciplinary team. I think where it becomes far more challenging, particularly in countries like Australia, is where we start to look at the large geographical distances that we have 
we often have very low target populations, so we have small numbers of people that are dispersed across a very wide area, which doesn't support healthcare delivery in those areas. So what we see in those areas is the need for really well-established rapid referral pathways that actually will take over the job of, of having that on-site expertise that we have available in the larger established centres in hospitals and major cities. I think to foster those regional relationships often comes down to the health service delivery setup. In Australia, we have a number of different regional services that work with varying degrees of success in terms of setting up interdisciplinary collaboration. What the research evidence shows in those areas is that key to that collaboration and key to good healthcare outcomes for those patients, whether it's in diabetes-related foot disease or in relation to other health interventions, what is key is good communication between health professionals. There is one very simple number which always drives me and motivates me, and you can find that also in some recent systematic reviews on this topic, is that the introduction of the multidisciplinary foot team is associated with around 50% or more reduction in the number of amputations. I don't know of any other intervention in diabetic foot disease which can result in a 50% reduction in amputation. Of course, there are no complete randomized controlled clinical trials, but there has been studies where two hospitals were followed over the same time and then one hospital introduced and the other not. Uh, and then they both systematically collected the data. And then you can see that there was this major drop in amputation rate. So it clearly suggests that it's not differences in expertise or technologies, but it's a very simple thing to do with a major impact on outcome. It sounds so easy. But it took us in my hospital five years to build a collaboration where all the partners trusted each other and all the partners spoke the same language and had the same aims because we are so trained in disciplinary approach and we do pitching holding. So you have to train teams to become a multidisciplinary team and to cross borders. Of course, now it's much easier to do, also in cancer and other areas, if alluded to that. But still, I don't know about any other disease where a multidisciplinary team has such a huge impact. Dr. Mills, one of the statements that will likely raise a lot of discussion is the recommendation that in patients with diabetic foot ulcers and adequate single-segment saphenous vein in whom infranguinal revascularization is indicated, and who is suitable for either approach, consider bypass in preference to endovascular therapy, particularly with the recent publication of the BEST CLI trial as compared with the BASIL-2 trial, how do you anticipate this recommendation will be implemented into daily practice? Do you expect more open bypasses for these patients rather than an endovascular-first approach? Well, I hope it does. So once you get to the stage where you think the patient needs to be vascularized, you've sorted through Wi-Fi, they're going to get an angiogram from the groin to the foot, right? And then you're going to try to determine, do I do endo on this or do I do a hybrid procedure or do I do a bypass? Up until now, what determined that was who saw the patient and what they were most comfortable with. Now that we at least have pretty solid evidence, it's a large trial. We can talk about some of the aspects of it that might be weaker than others, but... In patients who had a suitable saphenous vein, 
they did better with the bypass. So what does that mean? That means that, especially for patients with long segment disease, you should be thinking about that up front. Most people get some other imaging before they go to angiography, although some people go straight to angiography for CLTI. But if you already know there's long segment multi-level disease and you do a functional status assessment and use the VQI tool on the app to predict high or low risk, and they're a low risk patient that's likely to live more than two to three years, then they have an adequate saphenous vein, they probably should get bypass. So I don't know, it's not going to change people's practice that practice in silos now and are endo only people. But I think it may allow us to at least argue to get more teams involved. I think a team needs to include not just people that are graded endo, but people that could do a bypass. Because if you don't have that on your team, you're an incomplete team. I think the data speak to that pretty strongly. So I hope rather than encouraging persistent silos for groups that don't have experienced vascular surgeons, they'll reach out and try to find some that actually there's a lot of myth about vascular surgeons can't do distal bypass anymore. That's not true. But I think it should lead to two things. One is that careful thought should be given and patient's veins should be evaluated first. And then there are subsets that do better with bypass first. So the basal trial didn't show that, but there were lots of differences with that trial. And interestingly, there was a follow-up paper. So a relatively low number of patients who had CLTI were enrolled in basal. So that meant there was only a small percentage of the whole spectrum of CLTI that both the interventionalists and the surgeons thought could be randomized to either. But the Manchester group published their experience of the patients that were excluded during that time frame. And the patients that actually got bypass did better than the patients that got endo outside the randomization. So I was kidding Andrew Bradbury. He said that meant that the British were better at picking who would do well with the bypass, but not so good at picking who should be randomized. Because in the randomized group, what drove the results for bypass down there was the very high mortalities. They had a 7% mortality or 6% mortality in their bypass group. And it was only 1.7% in best. And that's so that the amputation-free survival endpoint they used in Basel was driven by the really high death rate in the patients that got randomized to surgery. Anyway, I hope it leads to building more teams that include all the aspects of care. So not just revascularization, but foot care. And also not just endo, but open. I think it's worth mentioning that Basel II wasn't included in this because it was published post the cutoff date for all the inclusion studies. I think there'll be people saying, why haven't you included Basel II? But for these sorts of guidelines, you need a cutoff date and Basel II was published about four or five months after. Dr. Shooter, your academic career has really delved into healthcare disparities. I want to applaud you for all of your work on this essential aspect of healthcare. Health inequities are a crucial focus when we try to optimize patient care, particularly for this population with diabetes and PAD. Could you tell us how healthcare disparities were discussed and addressed within these guidelines? Absolutely. Thanks, David. So healthcare disparities are a particular type of health difference. So it's linked with economic, social, cultural, or economic disadvantage. And so we see these disparities adversely affecting particular groups of people. So, for example, in Australia, I work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a lot who experience significant health disparities in our country. When we look at where these disparities come from, it becomes quite evident that access to healthcare is a key driver. But then the whole concept of access is actually quite complicated because it relates to uh, whether a service with all the necessary expertise and equipment is actually there and whether there's an adequate supply of those services, but then 
at a person level. It was also related to whether a person has the financial uh, and physical means to reach the service. So they, do they have transport available to them or are they really geographically isolated or are there issues around safety of that service? So, for example, from the perspective of cultural safety. So with guidelines, they're a key resource, but they can sometimes reduce healthcare disparities, but they could also unintentionally increase them as well. And it was definitely the intention of the guidelines to reduce them. The way that guidelines can actually unintentionally increase them is where we focus only on the evidence of the effectiveness of clinical options. So this is something that we discussed a little bit earlier, where we look at just whether or not something is clinically efficacious and not the other factors around applying that intervention to a certain setting. So this can lead us to recommending something that might be inaccessible to some people. So a good example of this would be a really expensive drug that might not be accessible to a socially disadvantaged population. And the other example was, as I mentioned before, in relation to TCPO2 as a prognostic test for wound healing. There's no point recommending only one test when it's not accessible to a lot of people. Similarly, we had another recommendation where we recognised the impacts of geographical distance, so remoteness affecting healthcare access, and that was making sure that we actually specified in the recommendation that centres treating a person that has diabetes and peripheral artery disease or foot ulcer, that centre needed to have expertise in or rapid access to the endovascular and surgical bypass revascularization options. So we were recognising the needs for alternate methods of care delivery that would include options such as rapid referral pathways or telehealth where necessary. And that was one of the most important things to consider because the guidelines are developed from a global perspective. So we're looking through this process of the summary of judgments process, developing them with the intention that they can be adapted for local delivery but that they're really relevant to a really wide population. Dr. Fitridge, these guidelines recommend establishing inline flow to the foot arteries and specifically targeting the artery which supplies the anatomical location of the ulcer when possible. This angiosome concept certainly makes sense, but is sometimes easier said than done. What are some endovascular strategies that you utilize with difficult revascularizations such as retrograde pedal access or perhaps other techniques? Certainly inline flow to the foot has always been considered important concept for revascularization effect with significant tissue loss. And this was a significant focus on the global vascular guidelines for chronic limb-threatening ischemia as well as this guideline. In terms of uh, angiosome-based revascularization, the evidence quality was assessed as very low, as you'll see in the guideline. We do know that for bypass surgery, angiosome or non-angiosome revascularization are equally effective. But in terms of endovascular approaches, a pragmatic approach for endovascular revascularization is to consider angiosome-based revascularization and if possible, open up the relevant tibial artery that is supplying the area of tissue loss. But if it's possible to open up an alternate tibial running to the foot, that is possibly just as useful. The evidence isn't that great for direct versus indirect. And we also looked at indirect with collaterals. The definition of that is somewhat unclear in a lot of papers. We do use safari techniques frequently. We can't open any tibial artery using standard techniques. And we also often get the best or most likely tibial to undergo successful treatment first and then 
try the second tibial artery that supplies the area of tissue loss. So that would be quite a common approach for us to take. It's quite hard to know what to do if the perineal artery is the only vessel running to the distal calf and the lesion is on the forefoot because we know that perineal artery doesn't always fill into the distal forefoot terribly well and you're relying on the adequacy of collaterals in that situation. But in the guideline, we talked about Dr. Trucy's study, which highlighted the importance of pedal arch patency and wound healing and limb salvage. And that's a really important aspect of assessing how to revascularize the foot. So kind of a bit of a tricky question that one, there's no easy answer, but I hope that's uh, helped to some extent. Another best practice statement that may be challenged states, in a person with diabetes and symptomatic PAD, treatment with clopidogrel or Plavix should be considered as first choice in preference to aspirin. Additionally, combination therapy with aspirin, 75 to 100 milligrams daily, plus low-dose rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams twice daily, should be considered for people without a high bleeding risk. I would love to take a poll of our guests. Which medications would you advocate for and why? I might start. There is the antithrombotic ESVS guideline, which has just been published as well. And this certainly spent quite extensive thought into this sort of question. It was important for us actually not to have a different recommendation from them. We actually thought quite long and hard about it. And Nicholas was involved in that section of the guideline and we look back to the Capri study, which showed Pitagrel was more effective than aspirin. And recently there was a, a network meta-analysis done by the authors of the antithrombotic guideline that uh, thought that Clopidogrel was pretty much equally effective as aspirin and rivaroxaban. And certainly the bleeding risks with low-dose rivaroxaban are low, but not non-existent. I think pragmatically we would use Clopidogrel. And of course, a lot of our patients have an endovascular intervention so that we tend to use uh, dual antiplatelet therapy for a period of time and then pragmatically should use uh, clopidogrel after that. I think nationally, years ago when Capri came out, everyone tended to use aspirin only because it was cheap and cheerful, I suppose, but clopidogrel does seem to be more effective. It's hard to interpret that data. So what I do based on several studies, but the patient's already on aspirin and they get an intervention. I usually add low-dose rivaroxaban if they're a low bleeding risk. I've found most insurance companies in our region cover it, but some for some patients, it's very expensive. Their copay could be, I've had one patient was $400 a week. Goodness. It's unaffordable. And so in that case, I'll either add clopidogrel if their insurance covers that at a cheaper rate and give them dual antiplatelet therapy. You know, you always wax and wane between the risk of bleeding versus the risk of limb loss and failure of your revascularization. And I'm pretty convinced that rivaroxaban is you pick the low bleeding risk group. And the ESVS actually has put out a picture guide to what, what constitutes low, medium, and high risk for bleeding. And if they're low bleeding risk, I would use the low-dose rivaroxaban. We usually started a day or two post-procedure, like endo earlier than open. And I haven't seen major increase in hematomas from that. And just anecdotally, I haven't seen a lot of major bleeding from that either. But in the large studies, the major bleeding rate was quite low, actually. One of the things we discussed in the group, and it, it, it's a horrible topic because it was already mentioned shortly that it's mainly based on Capri, and that's one large study. And one study, some people say, is no study. But actually, this you might say the same 
about aspirin and rifoxaban. Also there, the number of studies is very limited. And then the discussion gets even more complicated. And there, believers are non-believers. I belong to the believers camp. Is that the thrombocytes of patients with diabetes might be relatively aspirin resistant. There are quite a few studies suggesting, although not everybody agrees with that, that aspirin is less efficacious in patients with diabetes. That led us to the other arguments, where for us the major arguments that we said, okay, we go for clopridogel because there is quite relatively the best evidence because you could say aspirin, but a lot of the aspirin trials were not performed in PAD. So that's all open for discussion. Uh, and the rifoxifen, that depends also on your bleeding risk or is major determined by your bleeding risk, like Joe is mentioning. But in my experience, a lot of our patients that we see are such frail patients with multiple morbidities already taking 10 medications that for me, the simple aspect that we have a combination of two tablets in the morning uh, and one in the afternoon and compare it with clopidogrel, one tablet, then that is for the patient less burden. Second, there are some arguments about efficacy. It is a relevant discussion which will go on for ages as long as we don't have any new trials. Dr. Schaper, the overall five-year cardiovascular mortality in diabetic patients with an ischemic foot ulcer is around 50%. The guidelines suggest treatment targets to limit the risk of major adverse limb events, MIL, and major adverse cardiovascular events, MACE including an HbA1c below 8%, blood pressure below 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury, and low-density lipoprotein target below 70 milligrams per deciliter. All patients with diabetes are advised to take a SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist, irrespective of the blood glucose levels, because of the cardiovascular benefit. However, in some clinical trials, the SGLT2 inhibitor Canagliflozin was associated with a slightly increased risk of amputation. Dr. Schaper, could you tell us how these relatively new drugs work to lower blood glucose levels? What are some of the potential risks? And what are the most important considerations when prescribing these drugs? Yeah, that's a very important question and has been bothering us clinicians for quite some time now. The first thing is that We clinicians tend to forget, and in particular the patients tend to forget, that we all talk about amputation risk. Actually, the risk of death is so much higher in these patients than the amputation risk. The chance of death is around three times higher than the risk of amputation. So we should put a lot of emphasis on cardiovascular risk reduction and how you do that. Traditionally, everybody said, and it's also stated in the global guidelines, where we now in the new guidelines slightly deviate, go for the lowest glucose, go for the lowest blood pressure, uh, etc. We know in the diabetes field, and that is now you can find that in the American guidelines, European guidelines, is that if you go for the lowest glucose level or the lowest blood pressure level, you're going to kill patients because these patients are elderly frail, have neuropathy, they don't feel their hypoglycemia so well, and a hypoglycemic event is associated with cardiac arrhythmias and sudden death. Striving for a very strict blood glucose control in these patients is probably not so good idea. Also, because the beneficial effect of 
blood glucose reduction, strict blood glucose reduction, will take about 10 years. And if you have a 70-year-old patient with peripheral disease, I think it would be a miracle if most of them would be alive when they're 82 or 85, because then the benefit maybe steps in. But you have to take life expectancy also into account. The same applies for blood pressure. There are trials showing that too low blood pressure is dangerous for these patients and is associated with a progressive kidney dysfunction. You should be very realistic, and this, this is where you probably need GPs or internists to set realistic goals and to do this multi-polypharmacy to create an optimal cardiovascular risk reduction. And there, these new drugs come into play, and which makes it a bit more difficult for outsiders to understand that the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists both have been shown to be protective for cardiovascular risk reduction, irrespective of the blood glucose level reduction. So their beneficial effects are probably not mediated through lowering of blood glucose level. And that's why we say that everybody, irrespective of their blood glucose level, even patients with optimal blood glucose control, should have either one of these drugs. And then you should stop the other drug because then probably they don't need it because the drug you added is also lowering blood glucose. And now comes into the question, which one of them? They have different pharmacological effects. And actually, the mechanism underlying the cardiovascular benefit is not clear. So what I'm saying is hypothesis. But it is current belief within my field that the SCLT2 inhibitors mainly work through reduction of heart failure. And now suddenly we realize that heart failure is a major cause of death in patients with diabetes. And that probably explains... But if you start an SCLT2 inhibitor, already a few months after it, you already see a reduction in cardiovascular events. So there's a very rapid, large effect. GLP-1 receptor agonists have a lot of pleiotrophic effects. We don't understand a lot of them, but we think that they're anti-atherosclerotic. And of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, it has been shown that in post-hoc analysis, for what it's worth, not much, but that it is associated maybe with reduction in amputations. With the SGLT2 receptor inhibitors, there the discussion becomes a bit more difficult because there is one drug that is associated with an increased risk, the other is not. And we studied also I, the data of those two trials, they were combined extensively, and we don't know why. So it might very well be a chance finding. Uh, but to be honest, that's what we wrote in our national guidelines. If somebody is using this drug, has a food ulcer, and has peripheral disease, I would stop it for the duration of the ulcer. But once the patient is revascularized, then I would restart it. With the other drugs, I wouldn't change it. But that's personal opinion. All right, great. Thank you for your clear explanation about these new drugs. Uh, Dr. Schutter, there are several areas of research that are currently being explored in this field, including wearable technologies, telemedicine, and remote monitoring techniques to prevent diabetic ulcers or diagnose them sooner. What is your opinion about these technologies? How do you anticipate these technologies will be incorporated into regular medical practice? Technology is a huge expanding area of, of healthcare provision. And I think there's the opportunity for technology to make a really big difference in terms of delivery of diabetes-related foot disease care. And I think it can make a difference from a number of different perspectives. So 
So we automatically think about the difference it can make in terms of direct wound care, for example. But I think in terms of other aspects of patient care, technology is also going to be able to enhance those components. So things like building workforce capacity through education and upskilling, we're going to be able to enhance patient-directed self-care, which are really important. The larger the population we have with diabetes, the more strain there is on healthcare services and the need for preventative services and self-care abilities to increase is going to get much greater. I think technology also has the capacity to increase service access, so particularly in more geographically isolated areas. So we've got technology such as thermal monitoring, we've got virtual reality for remote training, we've got smart glasses for telehealth. So there's really a whole bunch of technologies out there that need to be assessed and in the clinical setting. And then, of course, we've got this really far-reaching potential of, of artificial intelligence in this space. Uh, I'm sure there's emerging technologies that will also enhance vascular surgery as well. But I think also how the technology is incorporated is going to be just as complicated and it's going to be very much driven by local needs and priorities. I don't think there's a, there'll be a one-size-fits-all answer for use of technology in healthcare systems or healthcare services because they're also different across the world. And I think one of the great strengths of technology is that at its core it's very adaptable and, and can be modified. So this makes it flexible and responsive to changing needs and priorities in particular areas. If I may add one thing, technology seems so attractive and it is attractive. And if was mentioning it, we should be very careful when introducing it that we do that based on evidence. It's not the panacea. And I think once you start looking for solutions, we should test it rigorously because it's not without risks. These joint IWGDS, ESVS, and SVS guidelines will no doubt transform the management of diabetic patients with PAD internationally. Do you have any final thoughts and takeaway messages you would like to share with our audience? I would add it. We made a statement. I think it's a best practice statement towards the end, but that patients were best taken care of by a multidisciplinary team. And I think that's true. And there is a substantial amount of data to support it. But I think the other issue, we don't have a national healthcare system in the U.S. So I live in Texas, which is a huge state. It's geographically all of France. Even the county I work in is 1,800 square miles. How do you, and with, without a single healthcare system, how do you integrate pathways for patients in rural areas or patients in remote areas of even an urban environment like Los Angeles or Houston? It's a big problem. And I think it would be easier to address if we had a national system. But even in countries with national systems, they struggle with this because these patients require a lot of care. It's also expensive when you start providing more care. What the government sees is the upfront cost, and they don't want to factor in that it might cut costs over time because that's not how the budget usually works. And we all think that if we could get to these problems earlier, prevent some, treat other ones earlier, that the costs would go down and the outcomes would improve. And I think that's true, but it's a real struggle. I think even in healthcare systems that are integrated, I think the Northern European countries have done better because they have that kind of a system. But even there, I think it's difficult. But in the U.S., it's a big problem. That's one of our problems is access to care. That's why, I just to tie in with what Vivian was saying, if we could do some remote monitoring, like you can monitor activity pretty easily. Your phone does your steps for you. 
It can monitor foot temperature theoretically. You can probably get a tattoo on your skin and use your phone to scan it to see what your oxygen tension is. There are things like that that potentially could be used. It's just coming up with a system that allows you to do that. And then the problem is going to be that some patients, the patients most likely to benefit from that are probably going to be the ones who need it the least because they're the most likely to to be able to afford or come in for their regular checkups anyway. So that's the conundrum. Despite some difficulties marching across the publication deadline, just because of the different processes involved with three different societies, it was like you ran a marathon and you're at the very last hundred yards and they decided to add two miles to it. But because everybody was committed to it, it actually went really well. And I was, I think that's a huge effort. I, I can't think of another set of guidelines that was published in three different journals by three different societies pretty much simultaneously. I think it's a huge step. So doctors Fitridge, Shooter, Shopper, and Mills, thank you again for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time to share your important work with our audience. Special thanks to Ezra Schwartz for coordinating and producing this episode. Thank you out there for listening and look out for more ESVS Audible Bleeding Transatlantic podcasts coming soon. Before we go, I would like to remind you that you can find all ESVS podcasts open access in Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and the ESVS e-library. And you can find the Audible Bleeding podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and the SVS website. If you would like to learn more about the Intersociety IWGDF ESVS SVS guidelines on peripheral artery disease in people with diabetes and a foot ulcer, as well as the authors, please check out the show notes. We will also be including any papers and resources referenced today. We wish you all a great day. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>